I don't really know how to start shows. Come on now, don't start, don't start liking me now. So yeah, I'm funny compared to, you know, well, you'll see later. I stand for mayhem! I know a lot of fucking idiots. I think a lot of shit is mean-spirited just because it goes against what they believe. But the relief of comedy is it takes things that aren't funny and it allows us to laugh about them for an hour. We got a purple suit to buy and a gigantic coffin. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Why Are You Laughing? A History of Comedy podcast. And today, I am pleased to introduce to you the amazing Jonathan. That's right. An episode you guys have been bugging me to do for quite some time now. Uh, over the 100 plus weeks that we've been doing this show, I've gotten a lot of messages. Surprised there's so many amazing Jonathan fans out there. And uh, I thought about doing an episode when he passed away last year. Um, but to tell you the truth, I didn't know a ton about Amazing Jonathan, and I wasn't really interested in him. It didn't, uh, for whatever reason, it didn't motivate me to do an episode. Yeah. And uh, as we did this one, shame on me, I say, because uh, he's definitely an interesting character. That's what you forget about these guys that um, don't necessarily have the respect of uh, all of their peers in comedy. They still had interesting lives and careers. And uh, I also think it's interesting to kind of look at um, why he maybe didn't get the respect uh, of other comedians in the same light. We talked about Gallagher. I'm sure we'll do an episode about Carrot Top at some point. These guys that are making people laugh and selling a lot of tickets uh, don't have respect in the world of comedy for whatever reason. So we'll get into that. Um, you know, I always say that uh, I hope these episodes uh, inspire you guys to look more into these people. Uh, one reason I'm kind of glad we're doing this episode is because there's not a ton of info on Amazing Jonathan out there. Uh, so hopefully we do get you guys to look more into him. But the two main sources that I pulled from are his interview with Mark Marin, which Marin, uh, as Craig was saying before the show, always does a very good job, almost chronologically breaking down people's careers as if it's for a show like this, where I'm like, oh, good, he asked about this. I can pull a clip from it. Yeah. And uh, Steve Byrne, there were two documentaries made um, before G the amazing Jonathan passed away in uh, 2019. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, one is on Hulu, and the other is uh, was done for All Things Comedy. Steve Byrne made it, and it's on YouTube now called uh, Always Amazing. So he um, got a lot of uh, our clips are from that as well. Um, so, uh, check those out if you guys are looking for more on the amazing Jonathan that we don't touch on. And as I always say, um, if we missed anything, let us know, let me know. And maybe we'll talk about it on a future episode or a bonus episode or something. And, uh, we have a perfect example of that today. Cause, um, I think it's a couple weeks ago. Now we talked about Howard Stern versus Opie and Anthony. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned that there was a clip I wanted to play that we didn't have. I couldn't find it anywhere. Luckily. My buddy Cardiff Electric found it and posted it on, on his YouTube page. So if you want to hear the full uh, context for this, you can go uh, check out our pal Cardiff Electric on YouTube. Um, but this is Howard Stern talking to Sean Hannity about Opie and Anthony. So real quick, this is off topic of Amazing Jonathan, but I just wanted to play it for you guys um, to you know, fill in the blanks on what we were talking about with some of that Howard Stern versus Opie and Anthony beef. This is uh, Howard addressing the gag order that he put on ONA when they were both at Infinity Broadcasting. Now, I've been on their show a bunch, and they say that you would forbid them from listening, I'm sorry, from mentioning you on the air. Absolutely. That's true. That's true. Why? Because well, uh, you're a big advocate of free speech. This has nothing to do with free speech. When I uh, am in business with a company, 
and uh, they hired Howard Stern imitators to go on in the afternoon. They wanted to. They did really well. I mean, they very well. And uh, the fact of the matter is, I said to management, I'm not interested. I'm. I, this is Procter and Gamble to me. I'm a. I'm a brand of soap. Yeah. And um, uh, I don't want anyone knocking me. I have a plan every time I go up against people. If I have to go up against you, I okay. analyze the competition and I think about you six different ways for Sunday. <laughs> and I turn to Mel Carmen. I'm not on the morning. I turn to Mel Morning radio is the most vicious. It's vicious. Stay in this time. I'm staying right here. I said to Mel Carmen at the time, I said, your two boys that you hired, who sound identical to me, will implode. I give them three to four months. They're so desperate to be famous. They are going to do something stupid. If they can't talk about me, they're going to go insane. Watch. And he laughed, and uh, I've made other predictions on radio. And one thing but I know is radio. you say, how I watch them implode, and I watch them lose their job. But if you're a strong supporter of free speech. Well, but that's the point. If you right. say that they can't talk about you or mention you, right. and you have the power because you're Howard Stern and you're making all this money for the company, uh-huh. is that a little hypocritical? Sure, maybe, but you know what? I win, they lose. Ooh. Oh, he's just a complete hypocrite. Also, the problem with his, by the way, sorry for the uh, sound quality, but uh, I think this is Sean Hannity was probably on AM radio, I'm guessing, 20 years ago. Um but uh, what's interesting about his little Procter and Gamble analogy is in, in this world, it would be like if Procter and Gamble passed legislation to make, uh, you know, other other companies couldn't sell their products and only Procter and Gamble could, you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> Either they, they might buy up other companies, sure, to make themselves bigger, but they, they, they can't, uh, you know, just shut down the competition the way that Howard did. So that was the problem with his. Uh, little analogy there. And yeah, that was the start of some of the Howard hypocrisy. So I thought it was interesting and wanted to make sure we played that at some point. Um, you know, we don't usually do that. The, I think the only other time we've made a, a correction like that was the famous Robert Schimmel, uh, Joe Rogan incident. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I erroneously said that Joe Rogan married Robert Schimmel's daughter. Yeah. And then I think I corrected it one week and then went back on it the next week. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah. All right. So we will get into the amazing Jonathan now, but first I want to tell you guys uh, about blindmike.net, if you wouldn't mind. That's where all our links are. If you're looking to find everything in one easy place, a one-stop shop, if you will, um, then go to blindmike.net. That's where you can find all of our links for free for this podcast, everywhere you get podcasts, why are you laughing, as well as uh, the other podcasts that I host, Blind Mike Project, and Who Are These Socials that I do with my pal Carl. Uh, you can find all the links there, wherever you get podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and what have you. Uh, you can subscribe to the YouTube, where uh, these episodes, as well as the Blind Mike Project, are every single week. Subscribe there, um, you know, like, comment, all that stuff helps the algorithm. And uh, we're trying to get to 5,000 on YouTube, all right? We're, we're, we're a small channel, but we're growing. Get those numbers up, baby. And uh, if you want to support us even more, you can become a YouTube member, as well as a member on Patreon. Um, trying to get to a thousand on Patreon too. All right. So let's, let's flex those numbers a little bit. If you guys, uh, are interested in supporting the program, uh, like I said, best way to do all that is blindmike.net. And, um, we appreciate it. I feel like I'm missing something, but who cares? (laughs) Enough jibber jabber. Let's get into the amazing Jonathan. And as I would hope most magicians do, uh, he started when he was a young boy. I feel like it would be very weird to get into magic in your latter years, you know? Yeah, I was uh, actually a big fan of his growing up because his special on, on Comedy Central would air all the time. 
Yes. And I thought it was one of the funniest things in the world because you would do stupid. Like he's about to talk about his spoon trick, but like you'd have explosions and shit like going off just to like distract you from everything. Yeah, he was he, he was, was very, very Gallagher in that way. I think the difference between a guy like the Amazing Jonathan and Gallagher is Gallagher always wanted to be more than he was. Mm-hmm. And based on my research, the Amazing Jonathan was pretty satisfied with you know comfortable in his own skin. Oh, especially, uh, uh, especially where he where he ended up in at the end, didn't have to go where anywhere anymore. Sure, um, yeah. So let's start in the early years of the Amazing Jonathan. This was uh, one of his his early tricks. Able to bend spoons. I, I figured out how to bend a spoon with uh, using my mind, but it was just misdirection. I would make him look away for a second. I would bend it. And Hold is on, that what most? I like. I like a guy that's been in magic for so long that he's like, just so you know, I wasn't really bending him with my mind. <laughs> that's why he didn't make it in magic so <laughs> long. do you think I was really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I could do it really, really well. And I did it for my physics teacher, who I really admired. And he said to me, is that real? Are you really doing this or is it a trick? Yeah. And I was really unpopular in school. I was like not standing out at all. Yeah. And so I, I lied and I said, yeah, I can really do it. Thinking that that would be the end of it. Yeah. Nah, and it's, I, the next hour I'm sitting in class, I hear on the speaker, Jonathan, John Zellos, please come to the principal's hall. I'm shit, this yeah. has something to do with the spoon bending. Yeah. I know it does. Yeah. I walk in there, there's my mom and my dad, with the, they call out of work, there's a bunch of spoons on the desk and a local reporter from the Macomb Daily Paper. Yeah. And I'm like, fuck, this is not what, good, So man. the physics teacher set you up to this? Yeah, he asked me if it was real, and I lied to him and said, yeah. So yeah. He, called, he told, and they got a reporter to come down. They wanted me to demonstrate my powers. My mom took me aside before the My powers? Can you really do this, or are you just lying? Yeah. And I looked her straight in the eye, and I said, I can really do it. This is like a snowball going right. down. I said, I can really do it. Yeah. And so I proceeded to bend all the spoons, and they freaked out. And, they, and then I thought... You, oh, you succeeded in the trick at all times. Yeah, I... I, I Bent everything, and the reporters—he's chomping at the bit to do this great story about yeah. a psychic kid. Yeah. But I had to figure a way out of it because I figured the magicians, local magicians, would bust me on it and make me a fraud. But, but, me- but they. <laughs> Local magicians would come after me. <laughs> they have leather jackets and they kick real hard. Break his kneecaps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that is a famous thing, though. Like the magician's code or whatever. That, right. that was a thing where you get blackballed do you, from the community. Do you remember that show that was on ABC for a while? It was a magician wearing like a hood and he was like outing every magic trick that there was. Penn and Teller kind of a thing like that, too, where they like get, they guess your trick or whatever. I don't know. But uh, the point, first of all, What's interesting about that is if you believe that story uh, fully, which, you know, he was a kid, who knows? But um, if you believe it, there are kids out there that were educated, the kids in their, you know, I guess they would be in their 60s now, that were educated by a man who believed, uh, you know, a 13-year-old could bend spoons with his mind. (laughs) (laughs) And if you watch his special, like, legit, he has, he's got, he's, does part of it in one of his sets and he's like I'm going to bend the spoon and like he has uh explosives go off like on the top right of the staging and everyone looks at it and they look back this and is a hard this is yeah. a hard episode for Craig to clip cuz he was going through going wait a minute these weren't all real he's he's not magic <laughs> and I feel like when my parents told me about Santa Claus right now <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah that it is it's also the nice thing of like I guess the pre-internet world or you know but there was more um it was much more easy to mystify people back in the day, I think. You oh, know? oh for sure. Time. Imagine a teacher calling 
a local paper because the kid bends spoons with his mind. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Jonathan could bend spoons with his mind, but wasn't necessarily uh, considered a good magician, right. which was evident as a high school talent show way out of it and this is how i got out of it yeah i told my oh, mom sorry I, I set up the wrong clip this is uh oh, this shit. is more yeah. about the uh bending spoons business yeah yeah this is getting this more with the the, the street toughs that are magicians yes. <laughs> yeah 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 the, the way out boys yeah. <laughs> and this is how i got out of it yeah i told my mom that i did want to be a normal kid i didn't want to be a freak in the school i, <laughs> I just wanted to be a normal kid I didn't want everyone looking at me like I was weird. And she bought it. They all bought it. And nobody did the story. And But it leaked. This is the good part. It leaked out. And yeah. I, I didn't get that, that press, which I didn't want. But everyone thought I was this mysterious. And I, I got mad pussy. I got yeah. mad pussy <laughs> in my senior year. Yeah. I did, yeah. Because oh, you were like the wizard. Yeah, I was like yeah. the man who fell to earth. Yeah. Man. Yeah. So. <laughs> and that's when you knew show business was the thing? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> man. If it- hey, the interesting is, if this was just like, like a crazy guy, you were taught you'd be like, no, you didn't get pussy because you were a magician. But the more I listened to the amazing Jonathan, uh, the, the more I do believe him because I think he's pretty realistic about his life. I, there, oh, yeah. there are, uh, you know, I'm sure it was the weird gothic chicks or whatever that were that were banging him back then. But like, I do, I do believe that to an extent that that kind of gives you. I think that's why kids turn to things like magic or whatever because it gives you something. Like it makes a kid, like he said, he was getting bullied when he was young or whatever. It gives you something, something that you you can start a conversation with or whatever it is. You know. Yeah. And that's why that's why a lot, particular now, a lot, I think a lot of people turn to comedy, um, you know, for YouTube views and TikTok views and shit like that. Like you're just looking for a way into entertainment. I think back in the day there was just a grit to comedy because people were doing it. It's like I need to make people laugh so I don't get my ass kicked, or I need to make people laugh to make myself interesting to girls. I think there was. There was more of a, an art to it that stemmed from just childhood trauma in a way back in the day. I don't know. I, I'm sure it still exists to an extent, but I think it's less so. The the Matt Rafeification of comedy, if you will. <laughs> but next we have now we've got this yeah, uh, this yeah. talent show I've been teasing. <laughs> I did a talent show for my high school. My family was there. My friends were there. Everybody was there to see me do the show. Before the show, he was very upbeat because he figured he had it all down pat. And I bombed so fucking completely bombed. <laughs> Just 100% bombed. Nothing worked. Six tricks. Six tricks went wrong. The guillotine went wrong. Uh, I killed a dove. The bird <laughs> ran away from me and I went to chase it and it stopped and I ran over it and just smashed it with my foot. What's this kid doing? I fucked the levitation up. There's a sheet covering this levitation, and you stand behind the floating girl and lift the sheet up. Well, behind your leg is a giant steel bar that's holding her up. They don't see it. But the sheet was up the whole time. So all the time I'm walking around, they see the steel bar. I'm pulling the supports out one, and then the other side, they see the steel bar. Then I go lift the sheet up, and I realize that it's already been up the whole time. I'm like, okay, fuck, I'm out. Bye, I'm done. I was so upset for him. And my, all my neighbors were there. After that night, I decided, okay, you're not going to be a great magician. Try something else. Yeah, so he, he sucked at magic. <laughs> and uh, he bombed horribly and it discouraged him from doing comedy. And what's funny is, like I said, I didn't know a ton about The Amazing Jonathan. 
I'm going to start calling him Jonathan. It's too much to say the amazing Jonathan every time. Which, by the way, what's weird about him is uh, his name is John and changed it to the amazing Jonathan because he thought it sounded better, but he kept it J-O-H-N. Like, he spells it wrong because he just didn't know how to spell Jonathan, I guess. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, so he, he sucked in magic, and he said even to this day, like, he, well, not this day, but, you know, a year ago, whatever. <laughs> um, he was friends with, like, uh, David Copperfield and Chris Angel and these, you know, very skilled magicians. And he said, like, in the magic community, if he was able to pull off a trick that they couldn't figure out, they would get kind of annoyed because they didn't respect him as a magician. Yeah. <laughs> just like, ah, ah, bullshit. Like, they didn't really, I don't, I don't know. They didn't, they looked down at him as a magician. So he would not like pull out too many of his, uh, his better tricks in front of them. Um, because that was kind of his whole act as we'll get into. Uh, but yeah, so he quits magic and, uh, he turns the drugs, but, um, some, somewhere along the line, he decided to uh, get back into it again. So where are we now? Street performing. Yeah. So, uh, like I, we'll we'll talk more about his drug use and stuff, which is another thing I I didn't really know about. This is uh, mm-hmm. what I did with the amazing Jonathan is stereotype him to think like, oh, he's a nerd. He must be into nerd things. <laughs> I didn't realize it was just a, a, a speed maniac and cokehead throughout gonna, his entire life. I, I was going to say, imagine if Sam Kinison pulled a rabbit out of his hat. That's the amazing yeah. Jonathan. <laughs> that, that, that kind of uh, kind of what he was like. Um, yeah. So, yeah, he, he, he was doing like mescaline and all this crazy shit when he was a kid, when he was in high school. And uh, one day him and his cousin and another one of their friends, they took a road trip and uh, made it out. To, they were they were looking for drugs for peyote, which he's going to tell us about. And I think that's where the uh, story picks up here. Francisco, and we, I, we, we were so broke that I needed money. And I started doing street performing. What was that, street. in the 70s? 77, 78. I was a street performer. So who was on the street? Whitney Brown Whitney, was... A, Whitney Brown was on the street. And uh, Harry Anderson, uh, he's the first one I saw that really blew my mind out there. Harry Anderson, um, I set my stuff up and was doing my show, and I went to grab a bite, and I came back, and Harry had packed all my stuff up and was in my spot. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't I don't know a Whitney Brown from Mush. He was on SNL, and he was also like one of the first Daily Show. I think he was on during uh, Craig Kilborn's time on the Daily Show. And uh, Harry Anderson, uh, most people know him from Night Court, but was also uh, I, I guess I assume you I never knew this, but used his uh, some of his street performing skills on Cheers. He was a character on Cheers that would come into the bar and do like bar tricks. Like, uh, you know, slipping Jimmy from uh, Better Call Saul, basically. Yeah. Um, and I didn't realize, like, oh, he, he must be skilled at sleight of hand magic. And that came in during his street performing. And uh, what what Jonathan said about street performing is, like, you know, people don't realize that you kind of have to. It's almost more pressure than a live performance where you sell tickets or whatever, because people can just get up and walk away. I mean, you can do that at a, a ticketed show as well, but like you're kind of just passing by. So you have to capture their attention and have them stick around for the amount of time that you're doing a trick and also impress them enough that they, you know, throw you five bucks or whatever. So he was doing this on the street to make money. It started out like, uh, like I said, him and his friends and his cousin were out there like trying to score drugs. And he started doing it for drug money, basically. And he kind of realized he had some success. So he would see, uh, 
other street performers was kind of influenced by them and said, Oh, well I can, I can do magic good enough if I mask it with comedy, you know, like I'll never be a magician like uh, David Copperfield. But if I kind of have the bit same as uh who are we talking about? Um, Oh, maybe oh, uh, Pee Wee Herman being like a bad comedian kind of. Mm-hmm. Where Stuttering John, uh, Stuttering John, Jesus, the amazing Jonathan. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm backed up. <laughs> People like that one. Yeah. <laughs> Jonathan said, like, hey, I'm not good enough to be a great magician, but maybe I'm good enough to be a purposely bad magician, you know? But it turns out he was actually just like a good magician doing funny things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that, well, that's the thing is he's of course better than you or I, but like I said, Chris Angel looks down his nose at him, you know, Chris Angel da- down his, his friggin' mascara to face yes. right, right at him. <laughs> Mind freak. <laughs> uh, next we got, um, uh, showcase. Uh, yeah. So this is kind of what, uh, set up his career. He came up in that, uh, San Francisco comedy scene, which is somewhat legendary. I would say in a, in a different way than, Boston, where, you know, Boston has all this lore around their comedy scene in the 80s with, uh, I mean, like Dennis Leary came out of here. Stephen Wright is probably the most famous as far as just stand up. Uh, but Lenny Clark, Steve, Squ- Steve Sweeney, all these like local legends, Don Gavin, um, these, you know, kind of hardcore guys that came out of Boston. And a lot of them like stayed here and made their bones here in New England for the most part, whereas San Francisco had this group. Uh, Robin Williams, Ellen DeGeneres. I think Bobcat Goldthwait was in that crew. Um, a lot of guys came through San Francisco that became very big names, and Jonathan was one of them. I went and did the Holy City Zoo the first night I did it. Robin Williams was it. Robin came in and did a set. Dana Carvey was there, and I was there. And we were all just starting out. Paula Ponso, Ellen DeGeneres, a lot of people that became really, really famous. We're from the same cloth, that generation of comedy, working that comedy club. Pretty good time for comedy. Clubs were springing up everywhere in the United States. I could go work as much as I wanted. I never auditioned for TV. I was always a street performer, then a club performer. They wanted three comics to go from San Francisco to represent San Francisco and go to the improv for a showcase, a big showcase. I'm take my claws off and run around. <laughs> This prevents streaking. They did the showcase and destroyed it. I mean, they have never seen anything like that at the improv. And one night, I got David Letterman. (laughs) Jonathan, thank you very much. Nice job. I got Stick of the Night. I got HBO Young Comedian Special with John Candy. That... I gotta say, I don't know if Thick of the Night with Alan Thick belongs in that pantheon. <laughs> For a magician, I think, sure. <laughs> I think the uh, uh, the Young Comedian special, I guess that season was hosted by John Candy. Um, I think that was his first, like, big break. And he says there, even like, you know, I was a street performer and a club performer, but what uh, really got him into the clubs, what like like most comedians do, open mics, um, club owners started to see like he can captivate people with his magic. And I think the difference between people starting out in the eighties was the clubs sold tickets. 
And they said, hey, if we can get him in here for the amazing Jonathan, if we can get people in here for the amazing Jonathan once, maybe they'll come back to see him. Maybe they'll, he'll impress them so much that they'll want to see him again. That name will stick in their mind and they'll come back next time he's at the club. Now, clubs, for whatever reason, and this doesn't seem like a great business model to me, but a lot of clubs are like, oh, you're not selling tickets. We're not going to book you again. You know, we're not going to book you unless your name is uh, Shane Gillis or Tim Dillon or so. You know what I mean? And then those guys go off to theaters and then the clubs are kind of fucked. You know, exactly. So it's a weird it's a weird model back. in, I think back in the day they had a, a much better setup where the clubs tried to sell tickets and didn't rely on the comics. Um, to move those tickets as much. And I think it was beneficial for the comedians because it promoted you to an audience that didn't necessarily know who you were. It was beneficial for everybody. And just like you said, they leave, they leave the club circuit and they're screwed. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, yeah, Jonathan got all these spots. He got Letterman, which, uh, there's some, some incidents with Letterman, which, uh, we'll get into Letterman's an odd, the more I do the show, I find out some weird Letterman's not, a hundred percent, uh, the, the, the rebel that we thought he was for all these years. I don't think, um, but we'll get more into that later in the program, but what's next? Uh, Joel Osborne. Yeah. So Joel Osborne was a guy that, uh, helped him helped, uh, Jonathan out a lot in his career. Again, we're talking about a simpler to the seventies, eighties, nineties, simpler time where a story like this wouldn't be scrutinized as much. I think now people would raise an eyebrow at this, um, but <laughs> this is Jonathan's uh, jo- Jonathan talking about his longtime business partner, Joel Osborne. You know Joel. I do. You actually yeah. picked him to be one of your assistants in, in a magic show in Australia. A long time ago. Yeah. It was kind of cool because we hooked up in Vegas, but I didn't know it. Right. Joel gets around. uh, As a 12-year-old boy, he used to camp out in front of my hotel room and uh, wait for me to come out. Uh, He used to call the comedy clubs, try to talk to me. He was a real pain-in-the-ass groupie. Aww. But he was little. So uh, any young boy that's 12 years old, I give a second chance. I give him the benefit of the doubt. (laughs) You do what you can. Yeah, to get him up to my room. He he never got up there. He's a pain in the ass. He could have been. But... uh, Oh, you read what you want into that. That's not what I meant. I meant that he was going to come up and I was going to fuck him up the ass. I don't know what you're Just dirty minds were thinking. Oh, fucking humor? But anyway, <laughs> you never had an intro like this ever either. So, so if you have... La- later on, later on, uh, his dad, who owns a, a, who owned a very, very large advertising company, uh, got me a commercial. Little Joel, 12 years old, Pestered his dad into giving me a $60,000 VIX commercial for one afternoon. He was no longer the little pain in the ass. He was uh, my pal Joel. (laughs) So Joel Osborne was a kid. So Jonathan went down to Australia and, you know, American comedy is becoming big in Australia now. You hear a lot of comics promoting gigs down there. Um, Jonathan was kind of one of the first to really try it there. I think, um, from America where he had, he had a lot of success there. He had a little show going on down there. He was in commercials and stuff. Um, and Joel Osborne was, was, uh, at his show when he was 12 years old and became fascinated with Jonathan. He said he'd never seen anything like that and kind of became obsessed with him and would start like, you know, uh, would show up 
at uh, shows he was at to try and get like autographs and that sort of stuff. And then it pestered him so much that Jonathan remained in contact with this kid, which, uh, you know, like I said, by today's standards, pretty weird. But let's not forget that the premise of a lot of 80s movies was an old curmudgeon that befriends a young, annoying 12-year-old and they become best buddies, you know? That's very so true. it was a storyline back then. <laughs> yeah, he actually uh, left a, a ticket for his mom and him and Joel actually kept writing him, but he ignored him until he called him with uh, an offer for a commercial. That's right. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, uh, so they, they stayed in touch and Joel, when he was like 19, really started to get um, Jonathan some opportunities. And eventually uh, this kid stayed in touch with him enough that Jonathan asked him to become his manager and all this sort of stuff. And then eventually uh, Joel Osborne does comedy now and like grew enough of an interest that like, he just kind of wanted to veer off and do his own stuff. But for a long time, they said that Joel was like kind of the guy behind Jonathan, like, like, you know, Jonathan's a drug addict. So people in that type of situation need someone to manage their career. And I think Joel was the guy that kept it on the rails for a long time. Uh, next, we have him talking, speaking of on the rails and keeping him there, uh, him talking about his drug use. Yeah. So uh, this is this was the real um, tough point about Jonathan's career, because there's a lot of guys that say, and I think Jonathan was one of them. There's a lot of guys in comedy that say like, oh, I wouldn't be funny, particularly back, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Um, I wouldn't be funny without drugs or alcohol, whatever. They think that that fuels them. Um, I think we talked about Chris Farley last week. I think that was the source of a lot of his problems is he thought he wouldn't be funny if he wasn't fat or if he wasn't on drugs, whatever. Um, and I think Jonathan is one of these guys where he thought, uh, that that fueled him in, in some way. Um, I don't think it's ever the answer, but you know, maybe there are some examples where like, oh, this guy wasn't funny once he was sober, but, uh. Let's hear Jonathan talk about his experience. The uh, the the sort of like the mythology around Amazing Jonathan uh, and cocaine is epic. Yeah, yeah, it was. I did a lot of it. I did a lot of it, and and for a long time, I wasn't I wasn't one of the guys who who quit after Robin Williams and, and no. Belushi's party. Yeah, uh, were you at I, that party? No, but I, that's when everybody quit around that year. Right, right. Everyone got thought, oh, well, this is serious. You right, know, this, right, right, right. People were going this could down. Kill you. Yeah. No, I kept going, man. I didn't. That didn't phase me at all. Well, I, you eventually ended up smoking it, right? Yeah. I did. I ended up smoking it. it. And then, you know what got me off of it? What? Speed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that was his solution to cocaine was speed. And he talked about it later in life, kind of the way. um, It's hard to say, because I don't think he was using late in life um, by any accounts. So maybe I'm just off base here, but the way he talked about it is like, he would almost get very defensive when he's like, well, it didn't affect my work or anything. Um, now if you watch the documentary, always amazing, uh, a lot of, you know, his, his people close to him that were in that documentary said he, he thought that, but of course it did affect his performance, right. you know, and particularly later in life once he got sick, which we'll get to. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's an element like, I think certainly a lot of drug addicts can rationalize it because it does make sense. If you have sort of a crazy act the way he had, you're like, well, how can I sustain that just soberly? I need like Coke or speed or something to amp me up. Now, I don't believe that's true, like I said, but I do understand the rationalization that a lot of people make, uh, particularly people that don't have a lot of confidence, 
that that get to that point and think like they need it in order to get on stage or be funny. You know what it was though? It's like um, his whole act was being real high energy and loud yeah. and everything. So that's probably why he doesn't think that the drugs had anything to do with it. He's like, that's just what I would do well, anyway. So yeah, he takes it to himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but next we have him talking about his razor blade trick. Yeah, and, and so this gives you a little perspective into what uh, Jonathan's comedy was exactly. First, you know, sort of spectacle. When, when, what did you, when did you start to develop the style of uh, kind of over the top um, insanity? Somebody, somebody once gave me a blood capsule. I used to do the razor blade trick where I would swallow razor blades and swallow thread and bring them up all on the thread. Yeah. But uh, someone said, you know, try this doing that with a blood capsule and freak them out. Yeah, pretend like you cut yourself. So that's the first thing. The, re- the reaction from that when I. Uh, when I started drooling the blood and, yeah. and, and uh, pretending like I cut myself, people would come around. It's like an accident. You can't take your eyes off it. Did you ever? Yeah. And it's like I said, I think it's interesting to it's interesting self-awareness to know exactly the style that you should be doing. Because I think there's a lot of people that if you get into magic young, you're like, oh, I want to be a respected magician. He's like, well, how can I entertain people? And that's freaking him the fuck out, doing something weird on stage. Yeah. You know, I, I respect that level of uh, self-awareness. I think. Thank God he bombed that talent show or he would think he was a self-respected magician. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is there's a fine, like we talked, we've talked about guys like Tom Myers and Dat Fan that take themselves very seriously. And it's just, if they had, I, and I, and a lot of people say when we talked about Tom Myers, a comment that I got that I think there's some validity to they said, if you give Tom Myers self-awareness, you lose Tom Myers. Mm-hmm. And my point has always been, no, you, you, he could harness that into something. And that's what I think we're seeing here with the amazing Jonathan. Like, he's a weird guy. But I think he was aware of that. And, like, I've, I watched his comedy for this. He can be a bit of a cornball. Like, some of the, the lines are somewhat stock lines or corny, whatever. I wouldn't call him a hack necessarily. I think he puts his own spin on it for sure, but it's not cutting edge comedy. You know, what's, what's interesting is the absurdity of it all that he was aware, like this is what makes it different and funny. And that's what I think about a lot of guys. Like I said, Tom and dat where it's like, if they could just figure out what's weird about them, what makes people fascinated by them and play to that in some way, I think they would have had more successful careers the way Jonathan did. Yep. And uh, speaking of success, uh, he got a game show. He sure did. This was, uh, it, it ran 65 episodes by, by game show standards. That's the, I mean, Jeopardy's been on for 40 fucking years. So by game show standards, that's nothing great, but that's a, that's a good run for a show. This is the closest thing I would say he had, I mean, other than being on Letterman and things like that, mm-hmm. I would say this is the closest thing he had to like mainstream uh, success is this uh, game show, Ruckus. What you was know? the Merv Griffin show? Well, Merv, Merv saw me do uh, uh, some of the late night TV show. Right. Um, but he hired me to do uh, in Atlantic City. He owned Resorts International. A casino, and I, I did a show for him there. Yeah, a live show. Yeah, uh, I replaced uh, Rip. Uh, what was his name? Rip. Uh, Rip Taylor. Taylor. Yeah, I replaced Rip Taylor. <laughs> you replaced. Rip yeah, it was Taylor. called Red Hot and Rowdy. The show. <laughs> yeah. So I was the headliner in that, and I and I brought in a lot of business. At that time, I was starting to get a good draw, so I brought in a lot of business. And he called me up after it was over and said, 
Ooh, I got a great idea. He says, you want to do a game show? You want to host a game show? And I went, well, I'm not really the game show type, you yeah. know? And he went, well, this one, you're the, you're, you're, cause I based it off your show. Right. So we want to do it. Well, the game is going to be different every time, every day. There's the game will be different. We will never play the same game twice. Right. That was the whole thing. So I said, yeah. And we went and we, we worked on it. We wrote it. And, I, and uh, some writers I hired, uh, the, yeah, so he he had this game show. Merv Griffin saw something in him and uh, gave him a show. And like he again, self awareness. Like he said, he's not your traditional game show host. He's not Pat Sajak. But they created some wild game around him where like the game is supposed to be different every time and it's crazy and all that. And something like that, Jonathan is great for. And um, it. We'll, we'll get into it here a little bit. But um, Jonathan says, like, they, they developed um, kind of the narrative that he was difficult to work with. Yeah. Uh, in order to screw him essentially out of money, basically. It's, instead of screwing him, uh, out of paying him. Um, and Jonathan has this idea that they kind of created that. And I'm sure there's something to that. I mean, obviously, you know, the suits are greedy and all of that. But. When a guy that's as heavy into drugs as Jonathan was says he wasn't difficult to work with, um, I don't always believe that, or at least take it with a grain of salt, because not even saying they're lying, I don't know that they remember everything that they've done, you know? Right. Um, I don't know if they remember every incident uh, in the exact way that it happened that people might be saying is difficult. So I imagine he probably was somewhat difficult to work with, which makes him a better, you know, solo act going on like to clubs and stuff like that, rather than actually running a television show. Um, but there's uh there's more to it here. The game show go. Did you, did well, you here's have the a good thing. run? Yeah. It, well, we did, we did the pilot and it was really, really cool. And, uh, I mean, NBC loved it and they picked it yeah. up and we just shot 65 episodes of it. We, we did. Wow. Yeah. We did 65. And then that so was that your big payday. The first big payday. Well, it was going to be, if that's the 300,000 I got, Ripped off. That was like maybe a quarter of the check. Oh wow! Yeah, but I, I yeah, they t stole all of that money. But um, yeah, we did sixty-five episodes, and I made I made some money off of that one. And and, and then I I quit the show because Merv, I did two episodes. They never aired, and they didn't pay me for them. And my contract said it, even though if they air or not, I still get paid for them. Well, they didn't want to pay me for them, and I I walked off the show. And, uh, and then when NBC found that out, they dropped the show and Merv lost the, lost the show. So there's no love between you and Merv. Well, yeah, we made up. I mean, I saw him at, at Rodney used to live at the Beverly Hills and he used to come down all the time with his bathrobe on, you yeah. know, he lived there at yeah. the hotel. And, uh, I saw him at the pool and then I went over to have lunch and, you were friends with Rodney? No, I just saw him there. I knew he lived there and I saw him at the pool and I talked to him for a little bit. I never met him before. So I introduced myself and, and then I went to have lunch and Merv was there having lunch with, with some of the bigwigs. So I took all the silverware from all the tables secretly and put it up my sleeves and I had it all ready to go. And <laughs> yeah. it was a big gag. And I yeah. said, Merv, no hard feelings. Uh, I want you to know I'm doing fine right now. And all the silverware just dropped. I made a, the loudest noise in the world in the middle of this restaurant and he died laughing. I thank God he died laughing. And that kind of was all right after that. <laughs> Never piss off a magician. <laughs> well, uh, also he mentioned three hundred thousand dollars that he lost in there. He got screwed by his manager, 
uh, in a deal. I think I think like a lot of people were affected by it, like uh, Jay Leno and some other people um, lost a lot of money in that deal. And what's always interesting for a guy like Jonathan is take Leno, for example, the guy was making, you know, tens of millions of dollars on the tonight show. Jonathan, that's a $300,000 is a much bigger hit, particularly when you're in the drugs, you know? Oh yeah. So losing that money affects your career a lot more. And that's real. that's kind of where like he hit the, he started to hit the skids as far as, ascending to whatever that next level would be. Now he has a bit of a comeback, which we'll talk about for sure. But um, I wanted to talk for a minute about comparing Jonathan to some of these other guys. Jeff Dunham is another name that come. I mentioned Gallagher and carrot top. Jeff Dunham is another one. These guys that are prop guys or magicians. And I think Jonathan even called himself a prop comic in a way, which he is. Um, what's interesting to me about them is that like, like I said, even there where he's like, I didn't know Rodney. I just went up to him and introduced myself. It's like a guy that was as well known as Jonathan at that time could have been on Rodney's radar. But I think he was so poorly respected among his peers. Like I've heard Jonathan used as a punchline a lot. Less so than Gallagher, for sure. And less so than Carrot Top, I think. Um, but there definitely wasn't a respect there. And it's always been weird to me because like Gallagher, we talked about it in the, the bitter life of Gallagher episode where Gallagher thought he was George Carlin. So I get the shit that he got, you know what I mean? Like he really thought he was kind of a philosopher. Jonathan never portrayed himself that way. Carrot Top never portrayed himself that way. Jeff Dunham doesn't portray himself that way. No. So I don't get why the uh, such disrespect comes along with those guys where it's like, hey, he's a silly magician. He doesn't talk like he's anything more than that, I don't think. So I kind of do respect guys like that. Like like I said, it's not for me, uh, prop comedy in general, but again, because it's very visual. But he's making a lot of people laugh. You know, he's bringing people into the casinos and making money. So good for him. Love him. Um, but doesn't come without a downward spiral, Mike. It certainly doesn't. He had his, uh, he had his demons, old Johnny. <laughs> At, uh, after, after the, uh, money being stolen from me and quitting the show, that was the downward spiral that started the drug use again. And then so, were you just doing clubs <clears throat> and stuff? Yeah, I was doing clubs and, and, but I was doing, uh, it wasn't pretty, I wasn't healthy. It was a bad state of mind. I've been, two times I've been in a bad state of mind. That and when I got divorced. Yeah. Both times I, 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 I never ever think about suicide ever, but I was just kind of contemplating. Like when I got divorced, I was sitting there with a gun in my mouth. Not, it wasn't loaded, but I just wanted to feel the yeah. drama. Sure. I wanted to know. <laughs> divorce is horrible. It was, it was and, and, really bad because mine, mine was really bad because she just didn't tell me why. She just said, I'm going back to Australia. I'm leaving. I'm leaving you. She wouldn't tell me why really. And I thought we had a good marriage and, and. Yeah, they were married. His, he and his first wife were married for about five years, and then she just like went to Australia. Now, again, this is where I think Jonathan deni- is in denial about some of this stuff, like his drug use and his depression. Because when he's like, ah, I was never going to do anything, I just put a gun in my mouth. <laughs> the scene that's painted in the documentary is much darker. Yeah. Um, the one like Joel in the, in the documentary, Joel Osborne explains it, and I didn't clip that because it's, I might have one clip for it. But. Uh, it's a little just longer in nature. The story plays out in a little longer fashion, but it's a much darker scene. And they also talk about in the documentary that 
this was not a one-time incident where uh, Jonathan would do this high-energy act on stage um, and then get off stage and just be in a miserable depression and, you know, cry in the green room and shit like that. Like he was, and that's where he really became uh, tough to work with. And as uh, people that are in that state often are, not necessarily their own fault, but like you lash out at others and do all kinds of shit that in a better state of mind you wouldn't be doing. Um, so I don't know if he's being 100% truthful about how he was feeling there when he's like, eh, I put a gun in my mouth, but it was all in good fun. You just know? to feel the drama. <laughs> it was just, I was being, yeah, I was being a rebellious teen, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that to me is, oh, the other thing I meant to mention about like the drug use and stuff. And to where, again, I think Jonathan is in was in denial about some of this stuff, where he would do coke on stage. Like, he literally had a bit around, like, snorting something in a way that would make the audience think, like, hey, he's pretending to do coke. That's funny. But he was really doing, like, he just set it up that way so he could actually do coke during the show. <laughs> but his depression continued. It sure did. Let's hear a little more about it. Uh, this is the uh, In Living Color stuff. Oh, yeah. Which, by the way, Craig pointed out to me, I didn't realize this. This is funny. They use a clip from In Living Color here, and they introduce, uh, in the credits, you'll see James Carey, which is kind of funny. <laughs> I didn't realize he was ever billed that way. Yeah. He was a big fan of Jonathan's, and he gets a call one day from him and says, come and audition for this new role on a show In Living Color. It came to the day of the audition. Jonathan gets to the front door, then looks at the corner, decides to opt out and go and smoke crack instead. I didn't want to work at all. I did, just didn't want to work. And Joel got me, talked me into going back out and working again. He was in the depths of depression. Before a show, he'd be backstage and he would just break down, sobbing next to me. And then he's introduced and, all right, let's go do this. You know, and then he'd come off and he'd just be miserable again. Yeah, him uh, on something like In Living Color would have been interesting because then then his character kind of expands. Maybe they put him in situations um, that would have been, uh, you know, building upon not just the one note amazing, like he's a magician, whatever. Maybe he could have done characters on that show that kind of built him into something. But like you hear there, like, the addiction kind of took over. He went to smoke crack instead of going to the audition. So you never got that next layer of Jonathan, which again, like historically, that's not what you want. If you're doing a show like this, breaking it down, you say, Oh, I should have gone to that, gone to that in living color audition. But listening to him talk, he seems pretty content with how his career played out, doing his magic, doing his bits on stage and making a lot of money, which he did particularly uh, once we get to his casino run, but like he was very successful. He doesn't have the career that people necessarily dream of, but like what he set out to do, he accomplished, which I think deserves to be applauded. You know, like I said, mm. there were two documentaries made about the guy in the same year, oddly before he died, which is a little weird that they both, chose to be made that year. I feel like he was uh, dying for like 10 years. So they're like, this is going to happen one of these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll talk about that. They definitely knew it was on the horizon. It's just weird that they both came out at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, like I, I, it, it, I think he's a guy, I don't know. I don't know how much of this is saying, but like 
he probably deserves to at least be mentioned in the same breath as uh, Gallagher and Carrot Top, I think, you know? Definitely. Uh, but here he is talking about Letterman with Marin. Yeah, so this is something I had not heard before. And uh, Letterman had an incident with Bill Hicks that we talked about, too. Mm-hmm. That make me think, like, Letterman was always the rebel of late night. He was kind of rebelling against... Uh, against the machine that is Hollywood and celebrity and all that stuff. But then you remember, I guess, like, you know, he's a student of Johnny Carson. Maybe he's more clean cut than we realize because there's some things he would not allow on his program. Something up. Now, the one rumor that there was always around was that you got banned from Letterman because you yeah, flipped somebody I off. I did. Yeah, I got banned from Letterman because I made a bet with a DJ named Kevin Matthews who worked in Chicago. And I bet him that I wouldn't flip flip him off sometime during the show. It was like a hundred dollar bet, and that, yeah. and that cost me. It was your first Letterman? First Letterman. Uh, I he called me over to sit down, and I scratched my nose with my middle finger, right. thinking that that's that's the winning bet. Yeah, and it wouldn't look obvious, but I mean, it it looked really bad. <laughs> I watch it now today, and I see it, and I go, and it was Robert Morton who who yeah. was producing the show then, and he thought I did it to him, right? Because he had cut my time back down by a whole minute and I was mad and, and I, he thought I was slipping him off yep. and so he told me you'll never be on the show ever again did he say I knew what you were doing yeah yeah he knew exactly what I was doing and, he, he th- and I couldn't convince him that I wasn't doing it to him you know you tried so, to tell him that it was yeah, a bet I said it was a bet yeah. and it was and and so I never he I didn't do the show the, then he got fired uh, maybe 15 years later he got fired and Letterman saw my Comedy Central special yeah and uh, personally called he himself called to have me on the show yeah, and I said, I wonder if he remembers that I had done a show before. Yeah. Now, if you watch me come out on the second time I did Letterman, he's you see me laugh my head off when I'm walking out after the intro. It's because he stood up behind his desk and, and did did this to me, like <laughs> flipped me off, and I started laughing. Though it's all he does remember this, right? So listen to this. I- uh, so we'll get into the rest of the story in a second, but it is weird. Like, and again. It seems like kind of one of the producers more than Letterman in this first instance. But yeah. it is weird that you think of Letterman as like this, you know, sort of fuck the man kind of guy, you know, going against the grain, particularly in his time, like he was doing weird stuff. And yet he did have these lines he would draw where it was like, if you cross them, even unknowingly, you're done. You know, and again, it seems like it wasn't Letterman's beef, but he allowed it for 15 years where Jonathan wasn't on the show. Which is crazy because for late night, you'd think Amazing Jonathan would be perfect. He seems like the perfect kind of guy, although I can see why networks would be fearful of him. And I think he explains that why, explains why that is in our next clip. Yeah, can't air it. <laughs> yeah. The best set I've ever done and yeah. on Letterman. It kicked ass. Yeah. And I was in my dressing room, like getting undressed, and I was so happy. The producers came back there and said to me, uh, we can't air that, what you, with that set you just did. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I just got killed it. And I said, well, I stabbed a girl in the head. My assistant was a girl. And I said, I stabbed her in the head with a <laughs> pair of scissors, and it looks really extremely real. And uh, he took offense to that. They, and and first, well, the, the guy said, Dave wants to see you up in his office. Yeah. He'll explain why. Yeah. So, uh, and he says, I don't know why, but nobody goes up to his office. He doesn't want anybody up in his office. So I got to go up to Dave's office. Uh, and he said, I, I want to explain something to you. I have a real strong position against violence towards women. And I went, well, Dave... That's it's slapstick is yeah. what it is. So what you're doing basically is you're 
you're you're because it's a woman it's right uh, it was, it's uh, also the classic sort of the uh the assistant the magician's assistant yeah and it was a, it was a slapstick gag but mm-hmm. he, he, he but then he said but, but the way he started it, he says nobody's a bigger fan of yours than my, than i am and after he said that he could have said anything it didn't matter right because uh, after i heard that i'm like well that's all i could think and about. they pulled it they they know they said we're going to hold the same audience for 15 minutes if you can come up with another set and get out there and we'll tape another set. And I, I don't have my props. I'm a prop comic. I don't yeah. have 15. I don't have another five minutes. So, so I went out and did the same material, except for I, I took the bit with the stabbing out and put something else in. That seems miserable to have to do the same shit in front of an audience that's already seen it. Can you just edit around it? Be like, this would be crazy, right, guys? Yeah. <laughs> Here's my next bit. It's like a, It's like in wrestling. Uh, once in a while, if they're if they're not live, they'll fuck up an ending to a match, yeah, and then they'll trot the guys back out in front of the crowd to redo it. But it's all with magic. It's also like, oh, we saw you do that already. Oh, you're so this isn't you know not, not that anyone thinks it's real, but it's almost like killing the magic of it. Ironically, you know. <laughs> yeah, everyone's gonna be like, all right, I'm gonna figure out how this motherfucker did it this time. Yeah, you've given me another clue. All right, I'm closer, <laughs> but. My main thing there is with uh, Letterman where, and I think Jonathan has the right attitude about it where he's like, I don't even really give a fuck. Letterman said he liked me. <laughs> and he goes on to say, like, I think years later he was, uh, he was performing at a, I think he might've said it was Mohegan Sun or Foxwoods or something. And Letterman came to see him. Like, so, so Letterman always liked him, yeah. but yet he did have these weird lines where it's like, you know, Dave, I, I'm against, you know, Violence against when meanwhile he's seducing all of his interns in the fucking office. No but, shit. You know, but but I'm just saying, like Letterman, you think of this zany guy. There were no rules. Um, he was go- he was going against you know breaking all the traditional norms of television. But he did have these weird lines, like like he drew with Bill Hicks. Now, what I do respect about Letterman is he will go back on those eventually. Like Carson was like, you know, once you cross him, you're done. Whereas Letterman, there always was, you know, years later, he'll be like, ah, I was wrong about that, you know? Right. Um, but next we have him talking about the golden nugget. Yeah, so this, this, in my opinion, is the most successful run, certainly financially, of Jonathan's career. This is, to me, where I think he found exactly what he was meant to be doing. And I could say I've gone to Skankfest a couple of years in a row in Vegas now, and they do it um, a lot of... Co- I, I stay at the Circa, not to brag, but uh, a lot of the comics stay at the Golden Nugget across the street. And um, that's like a... It's, it's hell, to be honest with you. It is a, it is a hellish nightmare. <laughs> on Fremont street, but it's certainly revitalized. It's always a lively crowd. They're, they're, they're freaks and goblins down there, but it's, it's definitely lively. You can't deny that <laughs> it was dead for a long time. And until, uh, you know, it was all, it was Jason all old LD. people. It was like, that was the old people section of Vegas, basically until guys like, uh, our boy, amazing Jonathan brought it back. Yeah, when I when I was in Vegas, when I started my run in Vegas, um, I was just supposed to do two weeks for Brenner to fill in while he was on vacation at the Golden Nugget, and two weeks turned into thirteen years. That's where. Uh, we, so you had like you were you had tenure there. You just I, had, I did. I was there for thirteen years. I just last January I, I, is when I quit doing. And that's big. Like so, you're all set. Oh yeah. After that, I mean, that was like three to four million a year, man. 
That was, wow. that Damn. was big money, big money, because I was filling up, up, the, up the rooms. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And like the, the logic was, you know, Jonathan's bringing in new blood, which it's funny because, you know, if he was there two years ago, he would have been, you know, aging the crowd up. But at that time, like he was bringing in a younger audience that wasn't there. Now, as much as I say, awesome for Jonathan for making all that money and being very successful uh, in Vegas. I will say, revitalizing Fremont Street, I cannot express to you enough how much of a hellscape it is down there. <laughs> and I don't think I don't think revamping Fremont Street was good for society. But my hat's off to uh, Jonathan for having an amazing run down there. Um, but uh, our last clip here is here. Uh-oh. We, we end on this one? <laughs> his retirement, yeah. <laughs> well, this is very sad. Well, this is his... Um, first retirement. So there is a happy ending here after this. So, well, not he's dead, so not that happy. But just, just know there was a bounce after this uh, very sad speech. This is his. Um, he was diagnosed with uh, disease, as he'll tell us, and he was given a year to live. And uh, this is one of his, if not his final show, in I believe 2011. I've done a lot in my life, I mean, and then 13 years in Las Vegas. I had a great time. The greatest time of my entire life has been here, and I've made millions of dollars. I have two beautiful houses, and everything came crashing. Hold on, that's funny. <laughs> you can tell a guy doesn't have like a family. He's like, I have two beautiful houses. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. You know, it's funny until you just said that. I in my head just heard children. <laughs> Two, I mean, they're the greatest houses. I have such fun with them. <laughs> to see them grow has been such a, a treat. Down when I was told I had a year to live. Sorry, go joke. back just a little bit. Oh, yeah. I love well, when comics th- get serious. This is uh, this is what I call the Michael Richards effect that we bring up a lot. Yeah. Where either, this guy's pulling fucking razor blades out of his tongue. <laughs> you think, <laughs> you think, oh, this is some, there's a misdirection coming. Yeah. But uh, not so fast. Everything came crashing. Down when I was told I had a year to live. It's not a joke. It's not funny. Stop it. <laughs> so. Um, I'm dealing with that right now. I promised I wasn't going to cry, but it's very scary. And uh, my heart is failing. My wife would have said it failed long ago, but it does actually failing for real. Um, (laughs) He tried. (laughs) I can't do shows anymore because my legs lock up and my hands lock up, and that's kind of shitty for a magician. But anyway, uh, I retired. I don't do shows anymore. I did my last shows at the Magic Castle. I got my fares in order, and uh, that's it. Thank you all very much for coming out. Now, so we don't leave on an incredibly depressed note, he made a comeback. He outlived his diagnosis by about 10 years, I think. I was going to say, I think he was sick, like the whole golden nugget run. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so, you know, he made a bounce back um, and came back in uh, 2017, I want to say, and started performing again. Um, 
and I did pretty much up until he died in uh, 2022. So that, that's that's the bright side, I suppose. He did have a decent run. And even on Marin, he says, he's like, listen, like the drugs didn't do anything to me really, except I'm going to die of this disease that I have. Right. <laughs> you know? Like while he was doing him, he was more or less fine by his account. Again, I don't really agree with that based on some of the depression and all that stuff, but by his accounts, he's like, Hey, until I got this uh, diagnosis, I was pretty much fine. Happy living. And then um, the, you know, the last 10 years or so of his life weren't quite as comfortable, but he, 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 you know, beat the odds. He made it a lot longer than uh, he was supposed to apparently. And uh, was able to perform again. So uh, shout out to the amazing Jonathan. Um, again, where do I uh, rank him on my favorite comedians of all time? He's probably not too high up there, but he did have a respectable career. And I think like, again, if we're talking about the history of comedy as we go along here on why are you laughing, the amazing Jonathan and all these other guys that we've mentioned that are considered, you know, prop comics and look down at, they certainly have a place in the history of comedy. I think, um, you know, I, I, I try that now to not be as snobbish. Like I look down more at someone. It's hard to even say. Cause like Matt Reif also makes people laugh. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like, I, I like making fun of Matt Reif and uh, all these other guys, but like, if you're making people laugh, I do think there's something to be said for your career. And for sure. the amazing Jonathan is certainly one of those guys. That's a great way to look at it. Like, no matter what, they're filling theaters and they're getting laughs. Like Nanette didn't really have laughs. It was more like applause. Right. That's where that's <laughs> where I come down more where uh, Hannah Gadsby is saying like, oh, well, Kevin Hart's not a real comedian because he doesn't have a message. I'm a real comedian because I have a message. <laughs> people, people are leaving your show in tears. It's not comedy. <laughs> you know, shut up, Nanette. Yeah, by by that account, what we just played of uh, Jonathan was the greatest stand-up set of all time. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Wow. So, shout out uh, Amazing Jonathan. And, you know, if you've gotten to the end of this and said, I probably could have just listened to that episode of Marin and watched the documentary, you're right. But we condensed it by an hour, so look at it that way. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, so yeah, let me know. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Maybe you look more into Jonathan. Like I said, uh, I've been going in and out of kind of your guys' suggestions and people that I've wanted to do for a long time, kind of been wobbling back and forth between those. Um, so uh, if you guys have suggestions, weird people like the amazing Jonathan, or uh, just some of your favorites that we haven't covered yet, let me know. And the best place to find anywhere you can reach out to me is blindmike.net. Um, you can message me on Patreon. We'd like if you did that, if you became a YouTube member or a Patreon member, you subscribe, you get bonus content every single month, uh, bonus episodes of Why You Laughing, as well as these episodes a week early. So you could have been listening to this last week if you were on Patreon or a YouTube member. Excuse me. And uh, if you'd rather just support the show for free, we appreciate that as well. Subscribe on YouTube or wherever else you get podcasts. Blindmike.net is where you can find all those links. And uh, also... If you're into just history, if you're a history buff and you're looking to expand your palate, Craig has a show called Rubbed Out, yep. where they explore uh, the history of gay crime. <laughs> and uh, sure. uh, is that it? Is that right? Yep, sure. That's exactly it. Uh, yeah. So gay, crimes and gay history. Yep. Uh, rubbed Out. And you can find that at verygoodshow.org as well as all of Craig's other stuff yeah. going on. Yeah. If there's a murder in West Hollywood, we're covering it. 
All right. Very good. So <laughs> you go to verygoodshow.org to check that out. And uh, we will talk to you guys next time on Why Are You Laughing? Zip it up and zip it out. Yeah.